Good morning, everyone. Oh, what a good group of educators. Oh, thanks. Good morning. I'm Kate Betts. I'm the Director of Education at the Bullock Texas State History Museum. So, quick plug. Austin 2017! Yay! Um, I'm primarily here to introduce the folks who are actually going to talk to you today, um, but I'm so glad to see a big audience at 8.30 in the morning. A few logistical technical notes. They are recording this session to be able to be heard later, so if you see us dogging you when you ask a question to ask it into the microphone, that's why. We know that you all have loud educator voices that could easily take over this room, but that is particularly why we're making sure that everybody speaks into a microphone. So we do have a wireless mic that we'll bring around to tables later as you have questions and as we're talking through some of the activities that we're going to be doing. So um, just a quick note about what we'll do. Um, you're going to have to be forced to listen to a commercial about the Educators and Interpreters Committee in just a moment. Uh, then we're going to do a presentation, then we'll break into groups for an activity, and then we'll come back together and do a little bit of synthesis. Um, so without further from that, I just think that we were so excited to work with the Arab American National Museum in order to do this session um, because I think that we see more and more that <clears throat> museums in general, educators in particular, are doing things with the community that aren't necessarily just um, this is about our museum. It's about what our museum stands for and what we as museum educators really want to create within our communities at large. So I'm so pleased that we could be able to offer this to everyone today. Um, but quick, our Educators Interpreters com commercial uh, with Alex from the Homestead Museum. Good morning, everybody. Um, this um, session we, as the Educators and Interpreters Committee, lovingly call our kickoff every year because we see this as a great and energetic and exciting start to our annual meeting experience. So the Educators and Interpreters Committee is one of 11, is it 11, Bob, affinity groups that ASLH has? Seven? Oh, why did I think it was one? Okay, well, maybe it's going to be growing very soon. Okay. And so what this committee aims to do is to really keep conversation going, not just here at the annual meeting, and we work really hard to try to come up with session ideas and to recruit people who we think will provide great sessions for educators and interpreters, but also to keep the conversation going all year long. And I hope that many of you have discovered the Inkwell blog off of ASLH's website. I see a show of hands if people have seen that. Yeah, this is a very two hands in the back. That's nice. Um, this is a blog that we really do make an effort to try to keep very active with content going on um, weekly, if not every other week. And now that ASLH also has someone focused on marketing, it's so nice to see that content shared um, on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and to see that you all are contributing in that conversation. So please keep the conversation going after the annual meeting as we ramp up for Austin. And that's the quick, short commercial. So thank you. So to get to our speaker, um, Isra El-Bashir is here representing the Arab American National Museum. Um, and they do a program about cultural competency in their community on a very regular basis. On a more semi-regular basis, they have um, the ability to talk to people in the community about it. And so we are pleased that this is one of those times that they will be able to do so. Um, so just a little bit about her before um, she comes up and we turn over the stage. 
she graduated with a master's in cultural anthropology from Wayne State University in 2013. Her research mainly focused on tropes of identity and belonging within the Muslim and Arab American communities in regards to citizenship, decoloniality, and critical race theory. She's currently the curator of education and public programming at the Arab American National Museum and adjuncts in the Department of Anthropology at Oakland Community College. So please join me in welcoming Isra. Thank you, Kate. Uh, good morning. So I'm going to be moving sort of between here and uh, the microphone, um, so I'm not really dancing. Um, so to really get started, because we are the session is projected to end at 9:45. I don't want to speak too much, but I want to offer enough examples to guide us during the activity. Um, I'll discuss a number of lessons that we have learned at the Arab American National Museum, offered to as A and M because much shorter, um, so to kind of guide us in that process. But before we get started, first, um, it's important to talk about our mission statement and why we exist. This right here guides our work, every single department at the museum. And so as you can see, our mission is to preserve um, and discuss the histories, the contributions, of, and the culture of Arab Americans. It's very simple, um, can be complicated depending on who we're talking about because one of the stereotypes that we often work really hard to, to um, dispel is that Arab Americans aren't one major community. There are multiple communities that exist within. So what I'm going to do for this next couple of um, slides is sort of walk you through the first part of our cultural competency training. So I'm going to simulate basically a cultural competency workshop that I would normally conduct with professionals, educators, um, to give you uh, an idea of exactly how this is carried out. So as an ethno-specific museum, um, not an ethnocentric museum, we make it a point to talk about our cultures, but also draw um, on the similarities that exist within the Metro Detroit communities because they're very diverse. The very important first step is building the basic foundation of understanding and distinguishing. One of the things that I often think folks don't really like to celebrate is, are our differences. A lot of times we just look for the similarities, we're really comfortable with that because we don't need to challenge ourselves intellectually, mentally, emotionally. It's much easier to deal with similarity than it is with differences. But in order to bridge that gap, we need to talk about the differences. So we start off with at the Arab American National Museum. So the first thing is, what are the unifying factors of Arab Americans? And we talk about three. Three main unifying factors. Language being one. Doesn't mean every Arab American speaks Arabic. But those who, and I'll show you a map of the Arab world, the 22 countries that we represent, the unifying aspect is language. So Arabic will be um, you know, utilized to a degree in each of these countries. Secondly, is a shared sense of culture. And we say shared sense, not just shared culture, because there's a lot of diversity that exists within each nation. And then membership in the Arab League. This is sort of the political makeup that determines which country gets to be considered officially Arab. It's modeled after the United Nations. So for this part, and this challenges a number of misconceptions, who are Arab Americans? This, again, when, when I say Arab American male or female, an image comes to mind. Whether it's a veiled woman, whether it's an olive-skinned man, whether it's the typical villain that you see in Hollywood films, something comes to mind. The same thing if I said African-American female or Mexican-American male. 
something comes to mind. This often is the first part of our presentations. Folks are like, well, first off, there are a number of countries I had no idea are considered Arab. You have 10 countries that are in Africa, 12 are in Asia. And we never think about the Arab world or the Middle East to be specific as Asian because we don't refer to Arab Americans as Asian Americans. So that alone also challenges some of the ideas out there. The other thing is, as a museum, we stay away from referring to the Arab world as the Middle East. And that's also one of the lessons in the cultural competency trainings because the Middle East encompasses countries that are not Arab. Iran, Turkey, Israel. Middle Eastern, non-Arab. So when we say Middle Eastern, we're, uh, we're also dividing, uh, we're creating a very clear divide between North African countries that also identify as Arab who are not Middle Eastern. It's basically divisive. And so in the museum, and those of you who get to visit us um, on Saturday, will notice that we constantly refer to them as Arab countries. Middle East is not part of our language. All right. And so... Within these countries, there's a lot of diversity, linguistic diversity. For instance, Morocco, Algeria, Libya. In North Africa, their official languages are French, Spanish, and Arabic. And currently, Amazigh, which is a language of Berbers, the majority ethnic minority that exists in these countries. And so even with that, the fusion of the language is going to be vastly different than that in Saudi Arabia, which is their official and only language is Arabic. I mean, of course, there are folks that speak other languages due to education, but the official language is Arabic. And what that means, it's the language of the media, the language of the school systems. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single resident or native speaks that language. Another way to complicate the situation is look at Iraq. We're all familiar with Iraq. Iraq is very ethnically diverse. Not everyone in Iraq is Arab. You have Chaldeans, you have um, Kurds, who are ethnic minorities that are non-Arab, who also um, are Christian and Muslim. Chaldeans are Christians, Chaldeans are predominantly Muslim. And so that alone further complicates the situation often for people who are coming to learn about Arab Americans, whether it's through a tour, which is a form of cultural competency, or it's an actual sit-down training with professionals who want to understand their patients, their clientele, um, whatever the case may be just to understand the nuances of identity that exist within this country, within this not country, within these countries. Different, again, different dialects. So someone, again, in Yemen may have a very difficult time communicating with someone in Libya on the colloquial level. Standard Arabic, it's like standard English. Everyone in the U.S. can communicate with one another on the basic level, but we might have a harder time in Michigan understanding someone from, I don't know, let's say the South or um, Appalachian. Um, areas. You know, we might have a very difficult time communicating, but there's still a standard English. So this is, again, a, a the way for us at the museum when we're talking about cultural competency to really highlight the differences before we delve into tackling issues that might impact our day-to-day -day business or things to keep in mind when we're dealing with a diverse um, audience. And it's also important for us as staff at the museum we work at an ethno-specific museum, but even as staff, we're not, we might not be well aware of all the differences. So when we're coming up with programming issues, it often happens. We might un, you know, unintentionally alienate one group or overgeneralize. Everyone eats hummus. No. Hummus is only consumed as a, as a staple in the Levant. It's an absentia in North Africa. Hummus is eaten whole, so it's chickpeas. So if you talk about, oh, Arab, let's celebrate hummus, the culture of hummus in the Arab-American community, well, 
only about five countries are going to be able to really relate to that. The rest are going to be like, that's not my culture. So even at the museum, we have to be aware of those small little nuances that may not seem very important for those who are outside of the culture or outside of the ethnicity or even outside of the profession of an ethno-specific museum. Does that make sense? All right. And so I'm going to actually ask you all to participate in this very small, it's fun, activity um, that sort of breaks the ice many times when we're giving a cultural competency. So what I'd like you to do, just raise your hand. Um, this is to challenge that image that came to mind when, we, when I said Arab American male or Arab American female. So this is a safe space. <laughs> All right. How many of you think this gentleman is Arab American? Just raise your hand. All right. How many of you think this young woman is Arab American? Raise your hand. One, two, three. <laughs> Hesitation. Both identify as Arab American. One is from Lebanon, Tony Shalhou from Monk. And the other is a rising star. She's a poet from New York City. Her name is Sophia Al-Hilu, and she's Sudanese-American. One is legally considered white. The other one is legally considered black, even socially, okay? Um, but they both identify as something different. Whether they personally identify as white and black is another issue, but ethnically speaking, they both identify as Arab. And that also challenges a misconception. Is Arab a race? Because, again, that one image that comes to mind tends to be sort of um, a monolith, a very basic image that, with, with folks sharing very similar phenotypes. What about the next one? How many of you think this rapper is Arab? Raise your hand. Okay, two, a couple. Um, the young woman? All right, a few. More hesitations. Both identify as Arab-American. One is of Moroccan descent, and the other is of Lebanese descent. And finally, how many of you think the young woman is Arab? Raise your hand. You can be comfortable. You know, there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, there it technically is. <laughs> so how many of you think the young woman is Arab-American? Okay, so a number of you. How about the gentleman? Okay. Both are Arab American. One is Lebanese, the other is Palestinian. One is Muslim, the other is Christian. I didn't talk about the religious aspect of the other because these images sort of challenge a lot of the misconceptions. She does not represent the stereotypical Muslim Arab woman that comes to mind. And he does not represent the typical um, Arab male. And so one of the things that we always say, sort of our mantra at the museum, is not all Muslims are Arabs and not all Arabs are Muslim. And the really important piece of information here is that the majority of Arab Americans in the United States are Christian. There's a 10% gap. And so within the Muslim American population, Arab Americans only make a third of that. And within the Muslim global populations, Arab only make up 15 to 20% of that. So in the global world and in the United States, they are a minority amongst, Arab Amer uh, amongst Muslim Americans. However, the stereotype and the idea of Muslims and Arabs typically tend to seem like it's 90%. All right? The narrative is always uh, conflating Muslim and Arab, which is extremely problematic. So this is why we have this activity. How many of you thought it was sort of effective? Challenging your, okay, good. So, just a very brief 
um, discussion on religion. These are just images of popular uh, congregations uh, around the United States, most of them in Michigan. As you can see, a Coptic Easter service, Coptic typically always means someone of Egyptian descent or Sudanese. And those who are of Sudanese descent are usually of Egyptian descent. So Coptics are usually those that are found in Egypt. Just think of along the Nile Valley. And then you have the Islamic Center in Dearborn on Ford Road. Some of you may, if you're locals, or if you've been to Dearborn, it's the, largest Muslim, it's the largest mosque in the United States. And then you have an Arab Protestant church in Madison Heights. And it's like Protestant and Arab, you typically don't hear the two together. But they exist. And then, in addition, there are a number of religious uh, Christian dominations that exist within that are very specific to Arabs. For instance, like Malachi and Maronite Christians are typically of Lebanese-Syrian descent. Majority Lebanese. And Coptic, again, Egyptian. So these are certain terms that, again, highlight an identity aspect. All right. And then Chaldeans are always Iraqi Christians. Not Libyan, not Moroccan, Iraqi. And then again, just briefly about Islam. African Americans are the largest Muslim population in the United States, followed by South Asians. Third are Arab Americans. So that, again, the narrative of Islam. And as an institution, believe me, and Petra can attest to this because she's our tour coordinator, um, the questions that come up of visit, those interested in visiting our shrine um, are always asking about religion. It's the number one most popular question. And so we spend a lot of time in this when we're conducting our cultural competency programs. We have to break down the um, misconceptions in order to even get to an understanding. And then, of course, there are other minority religions. Druze, the most popular, is Emel Clooney, um, who's of Lebanese descent. You know, she popularized Druze because it was a highlighted aspect of her profile. And then you have Jews, who are less likely to identify as Arab because there's an um, aspect of ethnicity tied to the Jewish identity. Um, but there are Arab Jews. The largest synagogue in the world is in Tunisia. And the largest, era, the largest Jewish Arab population that currently resides outside of Israel is in Yemen. So there are Arab Jews. It's not a myth. <laughs> so why we tackle the big C, culture? We do this, to, again, to challenge the stereotypes. And we're not going to go through this. But many of you have heard of these stereotypes. All right, whether they are in the news media, whether they're in Hollywood, whether it's just innocent conversations between folks. There are a lot of misconceptions. So in order for us to start anywhere, we have to head on tackle the stereotypes that exist. We use media to illustrate these points, that these aren't things that we um, create. Yeah, stereotypes exist for every single ethnic, religious, sexual, my, uh, minority group that exists in the country. However, it's sometimes extremely important for people to see proof in writing for us to illustrate our point. And I have this comic that's from 2010, not that long ago, um, of one by a renowned a cartoonist from the New York Times. And I can't see it from here. Um, but as you can see, this is the largest building in the world in Dubai. It's called Burj Khalifa. And the, gentleman, the two gentlemen on the camel, one of them says... How we Ahmed, um, how far we Ahmed have come, what a triumph for our glorious civilization. 
And the other says, and what a glorious target, Dubai should stay friendly with Al-Qaeda. And this little thing says, 21st century building, 7th century people. And this is in 2010. And so this is why we constantly talk about it. You know, and it's an important topic. It's timely, it's relevant, and um, it's a constant issue for us. Not a bad issue, because we take it upon ourselves. Cultural competence is the perfect opportunity for us to educate the public. These are just some examples of how we illustrate them, not necessarily through a workshop like this or a training session, but also through our public programming. We have our Yella Eat, this image down here, which introducing culture through food. Our program is now two years old, and the vast majority of those who actually register for our program are non-Arab Americans, majority white, older, between you know, 40, 40 and up, who are coming from Ann Arbor, further communities um, who are hesitant and afraid of Dearborn, which is the Arab capital of the world, uh, of the United States, not the Arab capital of the world. <laughs> it's considered the Arab capital of the United States. There's a lot of fears. And so to, when we market food, everyone knows hummus, everyone knows falafel, most people know shawarma. So that's like a nice way to get them in. And then they start learning about the migration route, why people settled in Dearborn, what's the differences, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit, and it breaks down a number of misconceptions and it causes folks to feel extremely comfortable because food is the best way to like talk about culture. Everyone knows Italians through food, Mexicans through foods, Chinese through food, before you know the actual aspects of their culture. Um, the other one is also like a family program. I chose this photo from one of our Christmas parties because I thought it was the cutest book. And the truth is, even within the Arab American population in Dearborn, which are predominantly Muslim, within the kids, a lot of them forget that there are Arab American Christians. And so when you hear about, oh, there's a Muslim family, Arab American Muslim family celebrating Christmas, they're like, well, why? But they forget that there are, you know, because it's something, again, when you're so used to people that are the of same background, you forget about the differences that exist. This is about a camel in the desert celebrating Christmas. You know, it's super adorable. Um, but it helps. And then, of course, we have our online um, database of Arab American stories. And again, you have another story about um, Father Shalhoub, who built St. Mary's in Livonia, a gorgeous church with amazing iconography, if you ever get a chance to visit, um, and how he, saw, he immigrated from Lebanon. And just a story. So again, ways that we can um, work on tolerance and bridging gaps between people. And so... I have three examples that are going to lead us into our workshop of uh, work, uh, cultural uh, sensitivity trainings, not just programs, that incorporated scenarios and uh, panelist, panel discussions to kind of give you an idea of exactly how we've illustrated this program. So the first one, this is with a group of professionals. I just gave you an image of the agenda just so you can see what an all-day program looked like. Traditional food, traditional dance, a panel on a very relevant, timely issue with Arab Americans um, discussing the topic. This was on racial classification um, in the census. And then this was one of the scenarios. And the vast majority of those who attended, about 30, are of differing backgrounds. Um, different ethnic uh, racial groups, all professionals working in different corporations. Um, and so this was one, it was really, all the scenarios are based on stories that we've heard from visitors or things that we have experienced as educators leading groups. The idea of ISIS always comes up. 
Um, and so that means in the minds of many people, it's impossible to separate religion, political um, terrorism, activism, and the Middle East. It's just all one. And so I say Iranian here because Iran is not an Arab country, one. Um, yes, they're predominantly Muslim, but the situation with ISIS, it's isolated to very specific countries. So Iranians are affected by it in terms of international politics, but are not directly Im impacted by ISIS as those in Iraq, Syria are. So that's just one example. The other one, this was one of our most difficult, in my opinion, um, and I worked on this with Petra. We had a group of teachers of heritage and non-heritage, Arab and non-Arab, who were teaching Arabic. And so we conducted this um, cultural competency training, and we came up with a couple of scenarios to really challenge them. The reason why this was exceptionally difficult is because you're talking to, um, most of them were immigrant, um, immigrant adults who are first generation. Um, when conducting their classes and teaching Arabic, they typically use their culture as the example, as sort of the epicenter of Arab culture. So if someone was of Iraqi background and they were more comfortable talking about Iraqi culture, but because they had no background in, say, Libyan or Sudanese or Yemeni culture, it would be a topic that would be abandoned, or they might find themselves unknowingly falling into stereotypes, because stereotypes exist even within. So it was extremely difficult. And so this was one of the scenarios, and I just want to illustrate sort of the complexity of how this can play out, even for those who are specializing in the language. Um, I'm going to read it quickly. Amira, a student in your class, is of Comorian descent. The Comoros is one of the 22 Arab countries in Africa. And during a partner activity, um, some students claim that they cannot understand the pronunci her pronunciations, especially other Arab students who are of Levantine descent. When I say Levantine, I mean Syrian, Palestinian, um, Iraqi, uh, some Iraqi, Lebanese, Jordanian. Thank you. Um, during one activity, a classmate tells Amira that he doesn't believe her Arabic is real Arabic. This upsets Amira, and she assumes the classmate is referring to her skin tone, which leads her to argue that Arab is not a race and that there are many dialects in Arab countries. I highlighted Arab is not a race because even to many Arabs, the idea is that it is. And so if you don't look like me, you're not Arab. Um, and that there are, not me, and that there are many dialects in Arab countries. The students look to you and ask, is Arab a race? And if so, how do you account for the many features, skin tones, and countries that exist? One student in particular asks you, who are the true Arabs and which dialect is closest to real Arabic? This right here, who are the true Arabs, was like 20 minutes worth of discussion between heritage teachers. And so getting them to recognize that even they are not really comfortable talking about that or have sort of um, unresolved issues with the ethnicity and the classification can be problematic to students that they are teaching. So this was, it was t a very telling um, workshop, but again, highlights the complexities. And finally, this was, um, I'll show you the, the issue. We had another group, MPH students from U of M. So these were all... Um, dual students who are medical students and MPH um, candidates. And so this was one. This is going to go over many of our heads, those of us who are not in the medical field. Um, but a couple has newly arrived in the United States from Yemen. The wife is uncomfortable. They do not speak English well. Um, so an interpreter is found. The interpreter appears to be having difficulty interpreting the woman's symptoms. The history is obtained is nonspecific. 
The physician cannot find any abnormalities on physical examination and discharges the patient home. Later, she returns with a ruptured ectopic pregnancy and is immediately admitted to the operating room. This was the solution. Now, before I delve into the solution, we at the museum, we're specialists in history and culture. So we knew immediately when MPH program director reached out to us, we had an opportunity to educate a number of students. But we also knew that within the museum, we don't have specialists. So we didn't turn it down because we are the only museum of our kind, we reached out to like-minded organizations to help us find specialists in this. And so we moderated the sessions, but we helped in bringing in the cultural aspect and they brought in the health component. So it's really important to also know not to overstep your boundaries even as a professional institution. So here was the solution. The physician notices that the interpreter is not able to communicate well with the couple. He asks the interpreter why the history is so difficult to obtain. It takes a few moments to discover that the couple speak Arabic and the Iraqi interpreter speaks Chaldean and very basic Arabic. This is a real situation. Um, the physician seeks an appropriate interpreter and finds the patient has mild pelvic pain and vaginal bleeding, um, yada, yada. Okay. So this, again, shows you why it's extremely important to understand the nuances, even in very minute, simple situations like this that could easily go you know, ignored. And I just had an example of uh, an agenda that we put together. It's really important to also be very transparent in your cultural competency workshops because folks already come in a bit nervous. You know, in the United States, we're not really a, we don't really um, promote a, a culture of celebrating differences. And then, you know, the whole issue of political correctness, people are already walking on eggshell when they think of diversity. You know, oh God, I don't want to be considered a racist, you know, or intolerant. And so it's important to put it out there, who's speaking, what are they going to discuss to get folks to calm and relax and get ready. All right. And so again, this, I thought it was uh, important to show you examples of some, of some of the lessons learned, some of the agendas and how we've worked on putting these programs together. So now it's your turn. Um, I'm going to first introduce the facilitators. Um, we have Dr. Matthew Stifler from the museum. We have Dave Serio and Petra Sufi, who are both educators at the museum. Then we have Alexandra and Kate, who introduced themselves earlier, and they're going to be our facilitators. We have seven tables and three scenarios. So what we're going to do is first, well, first, you know, eventually we're going to hand out the scenarios. <laughs> um, and you're going to have a facilitator. Some of you are going to be sharing a facilitator um, who will help guide you. But don't, again, I want you to keep in mind that this is a safe space. Just challenge yourself. Um, you will not be reprimanded or judged or kicked out of here in any way. This is a learning process. So you're going to work through the scenarios for 15 minutes maximum. And then we're each going to... Um, come back and discuss each of the scenarios, and those of you who worked on sp specific ones will guide us, and then we'll talk about it as a group. So there will be a synthesis. Does that make sense? All right. And as the facilitators work uh, to, in passing out the scenarios and also the worksheets for you to take notes, I want you to think of these guiding questions. So I'll leave these up. I'll even facilitate one. I forgot. I'm not just going to stand here for 15 minutes. So I'll help them facilitating. Edit. We're going to collapse to six groups, so we can do two. We have three scenarios total, so we'll have two groups per scenario. So I think this table has the fewest number of people, and conveniently six people. So if each of you will go to a different table, 
so that we can work through those together. I think that'll ultimately help us with our discussion a little bit. So everybody else, stay at the table that you're at and just welcome one new person. Um, we're going to hand out the scenarios for you to read through, decide amongst yourselves, take a few minutes to read them by yourself, kind of take it in, look at these guiding questions, and then we'll come over to start to facilitate that conversation. Although, please don't wait for us to talk if you feel ready to talk. That's right. And we're actually going to hand out a big version of the scenario that your table is going to talk through, but we are also going to give everyone copies of all of the scenarios. And I will point out there is one extra scenario that we've decided not to discuss as a group, but wanted to give to you as food for thought. And if you want to talk to anyone here about that afterwards, um, then please feel welcome to come up and do that. And um, one thing I should remind you, as you're working through this, it's not really coming up with a solution. You want to think yeah. about what are some of the issues here. Um, what, it's not really a what would you do situation. It's what can you really put, what kind of lessons can be learned from this? And what are some of the stereotypes, misconceptions infused in that scenario? So it's really to get you to recognize. Thank you. Okay. So I'm going to put a timer. All right, let's go ahead and um, finish our last final thoughts. So it sounds like everyone was having a fruitful discussion. Really glad to hear that there are voices. So that means people were talking. Um, so what we're going to do is go through the three scenarios that, have, that the groups have been working on. And what I'd like you to do, there's not one spokesperson. Just weigh in. We're going to spend the remainder of um, our program discussing these scenarios and really learning from one another, seeing sort of the different approaches um, because we're a very diverse group. So the first one, and I'm just going to read it out loud, Zach Urbanowitz is a public programmer at the Arab American National Museum. Zach often finds himself not contributing to staff brainstorming sessions on cultural heritage because he feels out of place as a non-Arab American. He always feels compelled to start off by saying, as a non-Arab American, or, well, I'm not Arab American, but... His job is to help in the creation of public programs that reach a diverse audience, as well as programs that celebrate the history, culture, and contributions of Arab Americans. We at the institution, we're a small group of about 25 staff, and we're diverse. We have a number of non-Arab Americans that work at our institution. So this is, they're obviously being hired in to an ethnics museum um, because of their background and what they can contribute to our mission. So their ethnicity was never a question. But that doesn't mean that the individual may feel uncomfortable talking about issues outside of his or her comfort zone in terms of like heritage-based. You can easily create a program if you know there's a popular issue, like people like dance, Depke, 
you know? But to delve into a topic where we're all brainstorming, like, do you think we're offending the Yemeni population by not reaching out to them? Or do you think that we should discuss Chaldean cultural aspects and not just Iraqi cultural aspects? Someone may feel like, okay, I can't really contribute to this. This is outside of my culture zone. Not exactly. So how do we break down um, that situation? So I'm going to go ahead and I think we have a... We have a mic. So those of you, two groups worked on scenario one. If you can just weigh in, that would be great. And we have our facilitators as well. So, Be bold. Perfect. Let's say awkward. All right. Um, one of the first things that came up is the question of um, what, the, in a sense, we wanted to know more because there, there's a question here of what role the in the institutional culture is playing versus the individual. Mm -hmm. And um, and so there's a need to kind of delve more deeply into that before we can figure out uh, what the real issues are. So assume that the institution motivate, inspires that sort of openness, that that is part of the culture, that the individual is the one feeling that sense of um, discomfort. And so whether you can come up with a solution of talking to the manager one-on-one, -on -one, but what are some things that can guide that individual? And this is something that not just our museum, but can be um, an issue that can take place at any institution. What are some of the solutions or, or approaches to this? Thank you. Something that we thought was important was uh, that this person seems to feel uncomfortable with his lack of cultural background in this area. And yet we were discussing, several of us, about how his position as he's supposed to be a bridge, he's a programmer connecting people from this culture to people who want to know or need to learn more about it. So therefore, as somebody who's not part of that culture, he brings a validity to the discussion, a very important validity, and he should not feel marginalized because he, he's the way, the catalyst, to get this information out. Mm -hmm. So, Thank you. Excellent point. Um, I think we also talked a little bit about not only um, institutional culture internally, but also institutional resources in terms of um, community uh, partners and collaborators that could potentially help Zach um, uh, learn some of this content or um, mm -hmm. some of this uh, cultural competency that he doesn't feel that he currently has. Mm -hmm. So is that already in place? Um, is that something that the institution can make room for him to do or time for him to do? Perfect. Anyone from the other group? And that's a great point, especially for institutions who may have um, experienced some of these issues, things to keep in mind. I think those are some great ideas. I think um, at our table, I found it very interesting that a lot of us have felt that we've been in this position for different ways. We have folks who've worked in an art museum who aren't trained in art, so sitting in meetings with curators are like, it's like a different language, or mm -hmm. we have somebody who's a non-attorney who works for the court system. So, um, so I found it really cool that we all identified with this scenario mm -hmm. in one way or another. And I just, we echoed what you said. We started out thinking organizational culture and what is the role of the supervisor in building a team based on trust and mm -hmm. creating that where it, um, where he can feel more comfortable being that bridge. We talked about being that bridge. We also kind of dove a little bit and making the assumption that say he is, you know, Caucasian and part of the white dominant culture, what role does he have in doing the research on his own so he doesn't um, mm -hmm. put the burden of being, you know, to the, his staff members and tell me about your culture. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think anybody else? All right. Oh, 
Yes. Thank you. Um, one other point that was brought up in my group um, is the assumption that if you're from that background, um, that you know everything about that background or that culture, um, and that could be very dangerous. Because um, you know, most of most of the times you don't. You know what you grew up with, but you don't know the rest. Um, mm -hmm. So you either pretend you know, or you come to a point in saying, no, this is something that we all need to learn as a group. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I would also throw in that if the programmer doesn't know about it, then maybe that's an interesting guide for what the programs can be about. So, I mean, yes, I'll, you know, educating himself is important, working with his manager is important, but um, I think we've all done that. Like, wow, that's the part of the topic that I didn't know about, and so if I didn't know about it, I bet that there are other people who didn't know about it too, and maybe that can be a partial guide for, um, for where that programming can go. If that's his job to reach out to greater members of the public, then that question has probably come up in other people's living rooms as well. Mm -hmm. And I'll just give you a really quick anecdotal example. I'm of first-generation Sudanese-American. Um, I grew up in a very diverse North African population. You know, so I, I think I've encountered almost every single Arab country except for three in Africa. Um, the Comoros, um, uh, Djibouti, and Mauritania. Those three. And I know what Mauritanians look like just because I've read about them and I've like sort of challenged myself and we've had programs. But when it comes to Comoros and Djibouti, no idea. And it's like something I'm taking upon myself to go ahead and start researching and understanding and finding out which communities, where they reside in the United States, because there is a diaspora. But even as a cultural anthropologist, someone of Arab American descent, someone who identifies also as African, black, there are still so much within that I have no idea. I know that they speak French because of French colonialism, but that's it. So even at the Arab American Institute, there's still an institute, Arab American National Museum, it's a different organization, um, <laughs> there's still a lot of education that can take place. All right, so let's move on to number two. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Three. Um, and really quick, just because I know everyone worked on their scenario, I'm going to read this out loud. For years, the library and research center has hosted a private Christmas party at a staff's home. Up until three years ago, everyone who came into the department participated in the festivity. It was a common joke amongst the staff that, they party, that the party was the most productive staff meeting of the year. This year, they hired a staff member who identified as Egyptian-American, Yasmin Habib. Several staff have attempted to accommodate Yasmin by bringing in food that contained no pork. This year, the Christmas party is being hosted at Matt's house, and no one has invited Yasmin. Staff simply felt that it would be offensive to extend an invitation and wanted to respect Yasmin. So I'll give it to um, group three to weigh in. We talked about how there's a lot of assumptions being made by the staff, quoting fingers, the staff. And, you know, right toward the end, I was thinking about the staff could be two people who just really like to gossip with one another, or the staff could be everybody. Mm -hmm. But clearly, she's being talked about behind her back, and people are making assumptions. Um, being Egyptian, I don't know, I'm making an assumption, doesn't necessarily mean you don't eat pork but maybe that's a question you might have for her. Um, 
this really was, you know, really about assumptions and not getting to know her, but just assuming things about her. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Anyone else? Yep. We felt like there was also an assumption made that she's not Christian or she, there was no, we don't know what her religious background is. We felt like maybe they could have made the Christmas party just, party, just an end of the year party or moved the party to a different time of the year if they felt uncomfortable. But by excluding her here, they're excluding her in so many other potential work relationships and they're making the environment not a conducive environment to have a really great staff working relationship. And so this just felt like one ding and on many that might come because they left her out here. Mm-hmm. And just really quick about the whole um, conflating uh, Yasmin Habib with Islam. A lot of Arab Americans who are Arab American Christians have Arabic names. Yasmin Habib is a very typical Arabic name. Habib is actually a very popular last name in Egyptian um, culture, typically belonging to Christian, Coptic Egyptians. So Yasmin Habib in this case is a Coptic, and so she eats pork and celebrates Christmas. So the assumption is being made. You have folks like, and I'm going to put you on the spot, Dave Serio. The name would never elicit an Arabic name. You know, you don't think of Islam or anything, or even Arab but he's of Lebanese descent, Arab-American. And so the name doesn't always say much. Phenotype doesn't say anything about religion, um, but it's often something that we conflate, and it can be very dangerous and isolating. And so you don't want to create a divisive space. Never feel uncomfortable asking someone. It's a matter of how you say it and the delivery, but believe me, most individuals in my professional experience want to be asked the question, what and why, so that you can, under- so that you can begin understanding one another. Assumption is the worst possible um, route. And I'm sure everyone, majority of you are nodding. Everyone is aware of this and understands this to some degree. So, thank you. Anyone else from group three? No? All right, so let's move on to the final scenario. Frank works at a National Histories Museum. One of their most popular exhibits is on the history of indigenous people. Frank feels that the education department, which has no indigenous representation, often focuses on the past and not the present history of indigenous people, basically displaying indigenous people as a people of the past. Since he is not of native background and works in curatorial, he feels uncomfortable discussing this issue with the education department. I think a lot of us can um, relate to this in one way or another. It doesn't always have to be ethno-specific. It could even be content-based. So... Group four. Safe space. (laughs) It's odd that I was at this table. Um, One of the things we talked about was um, that there may be an organizational culture that is preventing him from having the conversation, but looking to that and supporting that from maybe the top down might be a great um, investigation. But also one of the points I brought forward was that we really need to think about the importance, assuming that he is white and assuming that the other people are white, that it's okay to have the conversation no matter what and not to have the conversation is damaging and um, creates further problems. So to just avoid it, I, I believe personally, is, is quite um, harmful. So that was kind of the gist of our conversation. I don't know if you did anything. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> we were also really surprised that the questioning of um, of all of this came from the curators and not the other way around, um, not the educa- educators. So um, that was that was really interesting. But we had a lot of good, serious conversation too. Yeah, there are a lot of individuals in an organization that would be more sensitive to topics based on what they're personally interested in outside of their actual work. So even in our museum, it typically happens. We have viewpoints coming in from different departments, like maybe you should consider this, or maybe you've ignored this in the past. So just having that culture where we can breed openness is absolutely key. Anyone from this group? And also think of Frank as not just white. He could be white, but he can also be of a different minority group who's still also sensitive to this and not comfortable talking about it. I think we said very much the same thing, but I also have heard through a few of these scenarios, oh, you shouldn't feel uncomfortable or you shouldn't feel something. And I think we're missing something by playing down someone's emotion. Um, I work at Monticello and a lot of our conversation is about how to embrace feeling uncomfortable when we're talking about race and slavery. Um, And so I think finding ways for the people who are not, each of these scenarios has someone who's not feeling comfortable um, to, to be able to say, I am not comfortable, I am still going to speak. Um, so I think, I, I just wanted to throw that out there as a, it's a little dangerous to say, oh, you shouldn't be feeling this way. Oh, I have someone in the back. Thank you. I actually have a question about that because in my environment where we're relatively small staff and, um, and I tend to feel comfortable initiating conversations even if they're outside of my comfort zone, but that's me. And recently we've had to have a conversation about um, gender identity in our workplace and how that's going to affect the dynamic and how we all need to be better educated. Um, but what is one to do in a situation where there is a strong level of discomfort and is it best in that scenario to bring in a facilitator to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to start from a safe place like you fostered today? Um, Is that something that's recommended or does anyone have experiences? If, you know, as a leadership of an organization, if I don't maybe, if I feel comfortable, but maybe I don't feel competent in facilitating the discussion because I don't know as much as I should. And that's something that came up at this table. A few people mentioned that it's clear from what's written in the scenario that nobody on staff has indigenous representation or appropriate knowledge of indigenous cultures and histories. So there should be some outside consultation of of bringing in the community and and talking with the community that should have happened a long, long time ago. But um, clearly this is a space where this museum has failed to reach out to the indigenous communities in the area. Um, to make sure that they feel represented. Mm -hmm. One example I can give you from our museum is like the topic of Sunnishia. You know, that's a question that comes up. And there are a lot of staff members. My department is small. We have two people that are Muslim, Sunni. We're well-versed in our practices, but we don't have the theological background to delve into what really distinguishes the two branches. It's like it's a denomination, you know, Catholic and Protestant. 
you know? And so you're always comfortable in your practice. So we had to make sure to reach out, read content, get outside of our comfort zone to address these issues because the students that are coming into our museum from Dearborn are going to be a mixed group, even from outside of Dearborn, whether they're Muslim or not. And that question is always brought up of very sometimes uncomfortable because there's a huge feud and it's, you know, um, everyone knows about it because of the Iraq invasion. So it's a constant topic. And so for us also having to step outside of our comfort zone and to address that and to force ourselves, um, and I don't want to say force, but you have to to a degree um, to make it a priority to gain that knowledge. Um, another issue is, for instance, within the Arab American population, populations um, and multiple communities, it's easy for us to come up with programs celebrating heritage and culture and educating people that are non-Arab about Arab Americans. But what about talking about issues within the Arab American populations that are ugly? That's an uncomfortable topic sometimes for individuals, not the institution, individuals who are the ones curating these programs. And so it's the issue of discomfort, as one brought up, is a really serious issue that you must consider to say, get over yourself, you're in an institution, and it's not the easy response, and nor is that the right response. So just a little bit of anecdotal <sighs> background. Yes. I just think that's such an important topic, um, and, and the real message to me is that we need to get across the message that we that in varying degrees we all feel discomfort around these these topics, mm -hmm. and that we shouldn't we shouldn't feel bad about the fact that we feel discomfort. We need to create environments where people feel and enabled to get over that mm -hmm. discomfort. And I also want to just throw in the idea because I see this on my staff all the time. We have at least three generations represented on the on the staff. And um, we talk about that a lot. Uh, and what I try to, to communicate is how important I think it is to, to hear the voices of all those different generations. Mm -hmm. And um, that adds differing levels of discomfort around these issues, too. Definitely. Somebody like me, who's a baby boomer, grew up in a very different society than the millennial I have on staff. And I think mm -hmm. it's important to also be aware of those differences and, and celebrate them, because they're also bringing differing views into your institution, right. but also um, help that conversations to address those issues too. Absolutely, thank you. I know someone else raised their hand. Um, right there. Mm -hmm. um, just using this example, uh, I, one thing that we talked about here, and I think is uh, something that probably a lot of us deal with, this sort of interdepartmental uh, conversation or lack of it. And so just again, using Frank's example of coming from curatorial and feeling uncomfortable talking to educators. Um, when I, I think maybe sometimes we have a, a tendency to, in this, using this example, it's somebody, this is, this is something that needs to start with somebody else. Um, and without saying, well, maybe there's something in this case that we can do from a curator curatorial perspective mm -hmm. to change mm -hmm. this. And so, um, I, I, you know, we talked a little bit about siloing and, um, you know, the idea that this is an issue within our department, but we're not going to talk to them about this. Right. And so I think uh, one way, just overall creating this idea of uh, inclusion within our own staff and, and starting with ourselves, right? So um, if this is something that I can deal with in my way, um, as an example, as a, you know, mm -hmm. to deal with it in other departments and other ways. Building personal responsibility to advance exactly. the mission yeah. of, the, of the institution is also one that can help dismantle the whole culture of silos that easily 
can manifest. So. All right, thank you. Um, that concludes our session. Um, I have our information here if you ever would like to contact us. We have a number of resources also available to give you examples of how we illustrate culture, talk about it, and how we communicate some of these resources with teachers. Um, but also, you don't have to be a teacher to go to these websites. This is our online, ArabStereotypes.org is our online exhibition. So very fascinating website. I urge you all to visit. So thank you again. And I would be remiss if I didn't point you towards the pink papers in the middle of the table. AASLH values evaluation at the annual meeting each year, so please take a few moments before you walk out, fill it out, and put it on the back rectangular table before you leave. Thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you. And just a reminder, we have a Saturday session at the museum, so if you have a chance, please come visit our institution. It's beautiful. And I don't say that because I work there. <laughs> kind of. Being objective. <laughs>